Welcome to Strength for Today's Pastor, conversations with current senior pastors and leaders which will strengthen and help you in your pastoral ministry. And now, here's your host, Bill Holdridge of Poyman Ministries. Welcome to podcast number 136. Today we are with Pastor Tad Skeffer of Calvary Ellensburg, Washington. Tad planted the church in June of 2009, and I'm here in Ellensburg as we speak, and we are face-to-face in this conversation. And Tad, welcome to the program. It's really great to do this with you. Thank you, Bill. It is definitely a pleasure to be here, as I've stated. I uh, just recently got back from Israel. Uh, I'm a little bit under the weather, and so, uh, but I believe my voice is going to hold out, so I think we're going to be okay. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> So I have a face for radio, and you're going to get a voice for radio. The Lord's going to help you. Okay. There you go. <laughs> well, Tad uh, and his wife, Charity, have an amazing story to tell. Tad himself grew up in the community of Linden, Washington, which is cl- very close to the Canadian border. Linden's a Dutch town, a whole bunch of churches there in that town. And many of these churches are Dutch Reformed churches, which means they are Calvinists. Tad, you grew up in one of the Reformed churches in Linden, and all you knew was five-point Calvinism growing up. And I remember Norman Geisler saying, in reference to five-point Calvinists, he called them extreme Calvinists. So just, you know, for those that are new to the subject, perhaps, and haven't really heard that term, or don't really know what the five points of Calvinism are, or those who need a refresher on what they are, um, what is five-point Calvinism? Yeah. Well, I definitely did grow up in an area that is very reformed, very Calvinistic. Um, Our our little community there near the Canadian border um, was in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most churches per capita. And uh, there's about six or seven different reformed denominations within that community. And all of them would stem from Uh, the teachings of John Calvin. John Calvin uh, was a brilliant man. He wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion at age 27, and uh, after a dramatic conversion from Catholicism. And uh, it's the systematic theology that's based upon his writings. It emphasizes God's sovereignty. It emphasizes man's depravity. Uh, and, and certainly then justification by faith and predestination. And so the five points, and uh, you, you mentioned Dr. Geisler, who would call a five-point Calvinist an extreme Calvinist. Um, I, I don't know that you would really be a Calvinist without claiming all five points. Uh, the, the acronym is TULIP, and the T is for total depravity, where every facet and aspect of one's human nature is affected by sin uh, and incapable of doing good. Therefore, we, we don't want and can't want God based upon uh, our, our extreme and total depravity. So that's the T of this acronym, TULIP. The U is unconditional election, that from eternity past, long before the garden, that God determined that some of his creation uh, would be lost and that some of it would be saved. And uh, we would say that that is certainly true, but the Calvinist would say that he chose which of his 
creation would be saved regardless of condition. We don't have anything whatsoever to bring to the table. Um, so that's the U and then the L is limited atonement that Jesus death on the cross is the, uh, not just a way to be saved, but the way that the elect are saved. And that may sound a little bit like splitting hairs, but you would never hear about an altar call in a Calvinistic church because depraved man is incapable of desiring God. And so if you threw out an invitation from the pulpit, uh, man in his human condition is incapable to responding to that. And if he did respond, it would be an act of works. Okay, so that's the L and then irresistible grace uh, is based on the thought that all who uh, the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come. And there's none that will not come. And once God begins a work of regeneration in someone's life, he's going to see that all the way through to the end. Uh, it cannot be denied. It is going to take place. It's irresistible grace in someone's life. And then finally, all of those four lead to the final point of uh, a five-point Calvinist would be the perseverance of the saints. That's a logical outcome that, because if we're incapable of wanting God, but jo God chose some of us to be saved through the cross and the elect uh, cannot prevent God from what he wants to accomplish, then uh, we not only don't choose, we can't choose to be saved, we cannot choose to return to a lost state. If someone did return to a lost state, they were never genuinely saved to begin with. And so that's how I would define very briefly, uh, these are broad terms, uh, but how I would define a five-point Calvinist. Well, maybe we can get into it a little bit more later, but uh, the other day, Tad, you told me that you were very, very close to getting ordained into the Reformed Church, but things happen to change everything in your life, obviously. Uh, can you just take some time here and just tell your story? Because it's, a, it's an amazing story, and I think everybody would like to hear it. Yeah, um, so again, I grew up in this environment, parents, grandparents, all my great-grandparents came from Holland, they all came Reformed and all of that. I grew up growing uh, up in a Christian school and uh, went to a Reformed church my, my whole life growing up, but uh, there was no, and I had made a profession of faith. Uh, obviously, I was baptized as an infant, and then I made a profession when, of faith when I was a freshman, but there was no real work of God that had taken place in my life. And so I was very rebellious, and I got into a lot of trouble. I, I lived a very immoral life of sin for a long time. I met what would be my future wife. And she was Mormon at the time. I was 25, 26. She was about 23. And um, 
I asked her out and, and she refused over and over and over again for months because she doesn't date non-Mormons. And finally, she agreed to get, go on one date to get me off of her back. And we ended up dating for nine months at that point. And I didn't care that she was LDS. That didn't bother me. Uh, I appreciated who she was and that was good enough. And uh, at the end of this nine months, she had this ultimatum on a relationship that I was to be baptized in the Mormon church. And that's where I kind of pumped the brakes and said, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. And, uh, and so um, long story short, we ended up breaking up for uh, a period of time. And uh, she moved back to Utah to be with her family. But I had wanted to genuinely understand what truth was at this point. I knew that the lifestyle of drugs and sex that I had been involved in was not sustainable. It's not what I wanted to live for the rest of my life. And so I, I wanted to understand what truth was. And so um, I made that decision. And uh, the very next day, I got in a very serious motorcycle accident. I got hit by a car and uh, I was out of work for about four months, and the Lord put me, allowed me to be in the space to follow through on that desire of wanting to know what truth was. And He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, and I diligently sought the Lord. And I read uh, lots of books on Mormonism too, but it's in that time period that the Lord grabbed hold of me. And so, if we fast forward um, several months later, uh, my wife did leave Mormonism and moved back to Washington State. We began to date again. But at that point, to get to your answer your question, I just went back to what I knew, and that was growing up in the Reformed Church and in this very secluded, Reformed environment. But my life was so radically transformed and changed that I felt like my life would be incomplete unless I gave the rest of my life to God. And uh, I didn't know what that meant, what that would look like. But in talking with the pastor at the church that I grew up in, he says, well, you, you're going to have to go to college. You're going to have to get uh, uh, go through seminary and get ordained. And, you know, I'm 27, 28 at this time. And I'm thinking, you know, I'll be so old. I'll be in my 30s by the time all this takes place. And he said, well, our denomination has just started this um, mentorship program. And so there is levels of ordination uh, within most Reformed churches where you cannot uh, you know, partake of the Lord's Supper. You can't administer the Lord's Supper or baptize. And I just, I just wanted to be to serve the Lord. And if that meant I had to be ordained, I'll take a lesser level of ordination. I don't care. And so I began this mentorship program and it was a two-year program about uh, a year or so into this program where we met once a week. I was disheartened because my relationship with the Lord was so vibrant and, and real and I'm in the word and he's speaking to me and I'm praying with God and it's just, it's this reciprocal back and forth, very alive relationship. And I would go to these mentoring um, sessions with the pastor and not one time, Bill, in these months did we open the Bible. 
And not one time did we pray. And that didn't feel right to me, but I didn't know... I. I guess this is what pastors do. They just talk about theology and church business and all of that. And so I learned more about the five points. And uh, I learned, you know, how our form of worship was the correct form of worship, how our how we structure our services is the correct way to do it, how the non-denominational church in town isn't doing things right. They don't love the word. They don't have genuine worship. And, uh, and so I'm just... It's just a, a back and forth process of hearing how we do things right and everybody else doesn't, okay? And so I'm in this mentoring program and my wife and I get invited to, uh, our friends are having a baby dedicated at their, or baptized at, at a different church in town and we're going to go to support them. And so I thought the service started at uh, 10.30. It started at 10. We were 15 minutes late, and this was not a church that you interrupted the service in. It's very uh, high church, uh, not very Calvary, we would say. And, uh, and so I, I told my wife, like, we, can't, we can't interrupt this, this service. We're going to have to just go back to our church. And she said, well, how about we try a different one? Because we were already planning on not going. And, and so I said, okay. Well, she's like, there's one that meets in, our high, in your old high school. Why don't you try that? And so I thought that'll be fun to walk through my old halls and, and do that again. So we went and it was Calvary Chapel. I had never heard of Calvary Chapel. I had never heard of Chuck Smith. Um, it was just a, a non-reformed church that I was going to. And I had this attitude very much with like, uh, you know, my red pin was out, got my legal pad, and I'm going to critique this church that's not that's not part of the reformed tradition. And I'm going to find some errors and maybe report back to my mentee pastor and, and how they're not doing things right. And so went to the service and there was um, the worship. It seemed very genuine to me. Obviously, I don't know what's going on in people's hearts, but I'd kept hearing how their worship was not sincere. And this certainly felt sincere. And then uh, that's the first thing that stuck out to me. The second thing that stuck out to me was um, the length of the message. I, in my training, I was taught to never preach more than 20 minutes. That uh, that's all the attention span that the average congregant has. And so never go beyond 20 minutes. And, and so uh, I can still remember sitting there and thinking the pastor, uh, Ken Sutton, was about to wrap up and be done with his message. And he said, all right, let's open our Bibles and get started. And so that was a shock to my system. And uh, as I told you the other day, I like to, I, the way that I can best describe what was going on within me is I loved the Word and I was in the Word personally, but I was not used to this verse by verse teaching. And so I would compare it to you take someone from Ethiopia or South Sudan and you sit them down at your Thanksgiving table and the, the food is amazing but it's too much. It's too much for one sitting, right? And so that's kind of the attitude I had towards the Word. And then at the close of the service, uh, what was probably the most influential thing for me that Sunday, was I called a young couple up. And uh, some of you may know Brian Kelly, who went on to uh, get the Bible college started in Kampala, Uganda. But they were just leaving for Uganda, and they were up there and getting 
prayed for and she Lynn was pregnant and they had a two-year-old and me and my wife had just had her own child and they're headed to Africa and this was incredible faith to uh, to move to a new continent and take that great venture and so that was pretty impactful to see a couple my age making a step like that and so the very next day we had signed up for uh, a presentation to hear a sales pitch and you win a trip to Reno if you you know can endure the whole thing. And so we uh, were sitting down with the salesperson and he's got pictures of family and what appears to be a grandchild on the desk. And my wife says, hey, is that your grandson? And he starts to get teary eyed and says, yeah, that's 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 my grandson. We're like, what's going on? What? And he's like, well, I just today's a hard day for me. I just got back from the airport. I dropped off my daughter, um, and they're moving to Uganda. And I was like, really? We were just at a church? He's like, that's my church. Why don't you come back? And so um, came back the next Sunday, and he had said, I'll take you out for lunch afterwards. And so I went out for lunch with him, and uh, he was a little younger than my own father at that time, and uh, another couple that was a little bit older than me as well. And we're at lunch, and this is really what ministered to my heart when it came to Calvary Chapel, is I had never talked about Jesus or been around people talking about Jesus outside of church. And here we are at a restaurant in the open, and there are these two older men are talking about, you know, hey, you know, I was reading through Philippians and and the Lord's just ministering to me about how he humbled himself, you know, and the other man is talking about, yeah, I was reading in Colossians. And I had never been a part of a conversation like that outside of church. And that was more reflective of what was going on in me personally. And so at that point, um, I'm like, I, I have to be around people that are like-minded like this. And so I went to the Sunday morning still at the Reformed Church, and um, I'm following through on completing my ordination, and I wanted to be a catalyst of change in this older, uh, you know, dry church, and I wanted to be someone that could potentially bring some life into it. And so I went there on Sunday mornings, but everything else at Calvary Chapel had a men's group. Uh, they had a Sunday night. I went a midweek. I went to everything else Calvary Chapel had. And I did that for about nine months. And the Lord spoke to me so very clearly. And he said, Tad, you need to go where you're growing and where your young family is going to be fed and grow. And that was, the answer to that was easy. That, that was Calvary Chapel. But this was a monumental point in my life that I had to um, really make a decision in what mattered. And I said, Lord, what about the ordination? I'm a couple months away from being ordained. And he said, well, what's more important, being ordained or actually growing in your relationship with me? And so I, it was a hard decision. I, I can't say that it wasn't, but we left the Reformed Church, left behind the ordination, and uh, like Psalm 84, I would just be happy to be a gatekeeper. You know, I just, I'll, I'll be whoever at Calvary growing in my relationship with the Lord. And, and that's, uh, that's enough for me. And so that was kind of our introduction to Calvary, maybe a little bit more than you bargained for in your question, <laughs> but that's kind of how we, we ended up at a Calvary Chapel. 
Oh, I love it. That's not more at all. I mean, you you explain it so well, and what a compelling story. And and there are other things that are kind of exploding in my brain right yeah. now, Tad, because, you know, like the dynamics of what you experienced just in that first Sunday morning and then fo- the follow-up the next week yeah. with it's... with your friend. I mean, those dynamics, like, like for example, the dynamic of, of a church that is sending someone hmm. out on the mission field and that young couple is willing to go. And so that whole venture of faith attitude that was yeah. obvious in the yeah. church obvious in this couple that blew your mind and i'll just say right now you're you're bringing somebody to thought that's a little bit off topic but as a pastor now i would say because sometimes we could feel like if we're sending someone we're losing someone but they didn't lose someone by sending that couple out to africa they gained a tad in charity skeffer as a result of that, you know, we're never at a loss by being obedient. And, and if that involves sending people out into the harvest field, the Lord's, Lord's going to reward that. So, oh, well yeah, said, yeah. well said. And then there was the incident of hearing other people, Christians, professing Christians, those that were outside of the Reformed tradition, actually talking about Jesus openly in a restaurant with one another, and it was very personal, and that struck you big time. I mean, as a pastor, I mean, that's something that that is such a part of what we are as a church, yeah. fellowship. Yeah. We're addicted to fellowship like we are addicted to the Word and prayer and breaking of bread. It was so impactful, Bill. I, It was so foreign to how I grew up. You know, we had a rote prayer that we said at home before a meal. It was the exact same prayer every single day, every meal. And if we were in a restaurant somewhere, it's let's just bow our heads silently, you know, for 15 seconds or so. And that was the extent of taking our, our faith beyond the walls of our home. And, uh, uh, and so to see people talking like that to someone that is that's genuinely genuinely hungry and searching for like-minded believers, it, it was like coming across an oasis in mm. the desert. It mm. was so powerful. And to them, I'm sure it was just this is who we are. We're just we're just living the Christian life, you know. But that ministered to me so incredibly. It was amazing. You described it as life there was life there yeah and you experienced life and then you just now described the the situation in the reformed church as being dry yeah it you know <laughs> i i don't want to you know throw the church under the bus or anything like that but it it's it's an older church and most of the Reformed churches, they're full. They're, these aren't small churches. Uh, the church I grew up in probably had five to 600 you know, adults in it. And, but it is predominantly, the, the median age is probably 60 to 65, you know. And it's not just dry and dead teetering on old spiritually or uh, physically spiritually there wasn't wasn't that life there right i i can live with with someone that's 80 but they're they're vibrant with their faith and excited about the lord but um and so that was what was radically different is coming into calvary chapel and it's just not only physically younger but they're they're 
there's li- there genuinely is life there, and the Lord is doing a work, and it was obvious. I can I can totally relate. I mean, growing up as I did as a Roman Catholic, I'd never been in a Protestant church. You'd never been in a non-reformed church, no, right? No. And so I went to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa back in the days of the Jesus movement and yeah. the revolution that were happening in the 60s and 70s. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. I mean, it was it was amazing. And I, I didn't go into that meeting like you did, yeah. having already sought the Lord. Right. I was anything but that, but it was a powerful, powerful yeah. revelation to my soul. I'll yeah. never forget it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. And, you know, I now that I've been walking with the, the Lord for decades, I want to keep myself from just getting in those ruts, you know, and, and routines and, and uh, not letting that lethargy come upon myself and just making sure I'm returning frequently myself to my that first love, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think also, Ted, don't you think... Uh, on a side note, we pastors, we tend to minimize the importance of what God has done in our churches. We mm. fail to remember this is this is something that is earth-shattering, yeah. life-changing, yeah. you know, era-challenging, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, everything. Kingdom-oriented, you know, yes. and yeah. and we can think, okay, another week, you know, where I'm uh, knocking man, out a servant. You know? I, ecclesiology is so important to me, like, you know... <laughs> There is nothing like the church on earth. Nothing. There's nothing like it. You can't find it at the Moose Club or the Eagle Club or the American Legion. Amen. You know, there, there's just nothing like the church. And I think that hit me to even greater levels as I was teaching through 1 Corinthians, you know, with the immoral brother in chapter 5. And the discipline is removing him from the fellowship. That that would be enough that he would turn from sexual self-gratifying sin, just that I can't be part of this unique group, then we're, then we're undervaluing church. That's if, right. if, if being removed, because if I can re- if just step away from church to go fishing, you know, for nothing wrong with fishing, mm-hmm. no, don't get me wrong. But if, if I can easily find excuses to be away from the fellowship, the called out ones, then I'm missing what it's supposed to be about, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and I said. know we're getting a little. No, no, this is all. This is all good. This and, is a podcast the, for pastors. We all need this encouragement. And the thing, my final thing is, you get to Second Corinthians, right? And it and it worked. Yeah, it did not work. not being in the fellowship was enough for him to turn from sin. Yeah. And then doggone it, man! I want to make our fellowship as inviting as you can't miss it as possible. So, <laughs> right, yeah. right. I get it. That's cool. So back to the ordination yes. scene. Yeah. I mean, uh, you told me that there was one candidate that was applying for a position in a church as yeah. a pastor. Yeah. And he was uh, biblically qualified. Tell us that story yeah. because they they did not accept him. Yeah, my brother-in-law was on the regional governing body at that time that would allow someone to go through this process to be ordained at the level that I was attempting to be ordained at. And we were having Sunday dinner or whatever, and they're just talking about how he had never seen someone like this that knew the Bible front to back like this guy. It was incredible. He's quoting verses. He knew about the Bible so much, but he didn't know the five points and he couldn't give a proper definition. And so we had to turn him down. Wow. And uh, 
I was like, man, something is uh, off kilter there. If that is what is really mm-hmm. keeping someone out of a calling, you know, that they can't recite this acronym and, and what it means. Right. So, yeah. Right. Wow. That's, that's heartbreaking and sad. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully this guy found himself somewhere else that, you know, that, that appreciated that. So I'm sure he did. So back to Norman Geisler for a moment. And, yeah. uh, 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 he maintained that in looking at Tulip, and I want to talk about this a little bit, yep. in looking at Tulip, he felt like T in Tulip, how one defined that, was was the linchpin to the rest of the letters yes. to ULIP yep. and what they meant. And he stated something as he unpacked that, and I'm going to put this in the, in the show notes, a link to a YouTube video where he's teaching oh, okay, this subject. Good. Uh, why am I, uh, five reasons I'm not a five point Calvinist, I think is what it was called. But he said, he said, and I hadn't known this. He said, he extreme Calvinists believe that due to the total depravity of the human race, a person actually must first be regenerated, born again. And only then can he or she understand the gospel to be justified or to be saved. And so God sovereignly decides who will be regenerated, the implication is, Mm -hmm. to be able to understand the gospel and who will not. Is that what you understood growing up, or is there is that in an accurate? No, I I think that's incredibly accurate. You know, and as you just said, it's the linchpin for the rest of the what encompasses Calvinism, and it's true. And I don't know that you could have a Calvinist outside of that starting point. John Piper put it this way, that regeneration is the cause of faith. And having been born of God results in our believing. Our believing is the immediate evidence of God's begetting. And so a true Calvinist would say that new birth must come before faith, since totally depraved persons cannot exercise faith. It's impossible for a depraved person to exercise faith. So new birth must cause that. And uh, uh, Abraham Kuyper, who is another Dutch, uh, famous Dutch reformer, said that an unregenerate sinner has all the passive properties belonging to a corpse. And so they would view this total depravity as Lazarus in the grave. And he can't come out until he's he's called out. So I believe that's a very accurate understanding of the T of tulip for mm. sure. Well, that was absolutely shocking to me, especially uh, just looking at the New Testament, the way the gospel was preached. And then when Nicodemus wanted to know from Jesus concerning the new birth, how can these things be? Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't understand these things. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his own. So Jesus' answer to Nicodemus about how how does the new birth even work is you go to the cross. And so you believe in what Jesus accomplished there. He took my place. You see him there at Calvary just like they saw the... The, the bronze serpent yeah. up on the, right. you know, the pole, yeah. and, and they were freed from their snake bite. Yeah. You know, I was sharing with, with you the other day when you were asking uh, just about my, you know, Calvinistic background is 
there's this thought and belief that no man comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And they like to point out that that word draw is what is used from bringing water at the bottom of a well up in a bucket. You know, the water doesn't get to the top by itself, right? And so it's this myopic view of how this process of coming to faith works. You're looking at one side of the equation and emphasizing that without seeing the full spectrum of everything that's involved. Amen. Do we, Have you ever met anybody? I've never met anybody that's come to faith in Christ that hasn't looked back and said, I can see the hand of God working throughout my life, but I didn't recognize it until I yeah. believed the gospel. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's his drawing, isn't it? Amen. It's so true. Absolutely. That's all of us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so if if that's what's going on with T, then the U of tulip, unconditional election, uh, isn't is a next necessary conclusion. It's I mean, absolutely necessary. God I, unconditionally chose, yeah. and that means He unconditionally decided not to choose others. Right, but He apparently chose a lot of Dutch folks. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> kabam. <laughs> So so you you've explained how your position on the necessity of pre-salvation regeneration how that's not a biblical concept. Yeah. So that view of T leads to the doc, their doctrine of you unconditional election which necessitates the doctrine of L which is limited atonement. Yeah. So yeah. explain that. How does that work? Yeah. Man is incapable of desiring God, wanting God, incapable of truly being righteous. Every motive is flawed. It's selfish. Every single one. And so uh, even a feigned conversion would be an attempt in the flesh to, to have selfish motivation behind that, right? And so limited atonement is, since man is that way, God chooses, and then the vehicle in which he saves those he chooses, his elect, is the cross. And uh, the salvation is not, you know, we would say that, uh, hey, anybody that wants to confess their sin or repent their sin, have that opportunity so and you can be saved. And you can't say that within the Reformed Church because we can't speak that God has necessarily saved that person. It's it's limited to who God has chosen. I, uh, I remember speaking with one of the elders at the church um, that I was going to get ordained in and just talking about this limited atonement. How does this work? And how is that right? And well, it's right because we're all depraved. And so anybody that receives this, it's an act of grace, right? But he defined it as there's an area rug here in this room and he had a cup of coffee at the time. He said, if I just took this coffee and just threw it up in the air and wherever coffee landed and all those, if all those fibers in that rug were human beings, where that coffee landed, those would be saved. It's there's nothing that they bring to the table. You know, it's it seems capricious for sure. You know, but that's how he uh, described this limited atonement to me. So using that analogy, only those fibers that have been touched by the by the coffee, those are the only ones that Jesus actually died for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't die for. Why would he shed his precious blood for unregenerate? unsaved sinners so the a waste of the precious blood of jesus waste of the blood yeah. yeah and and therefore it is finished tetelestai 
doesn't mean that every sin ever committed from any human being from all time was actually paid for by Christ. Salvation not received yet until faith comes, but actually had been paid for. So it's a minimizing of the extent of the effect of the cross. And we talked about forgiveness yesterday of one one to another, you know, as we were sharing in our little huddle. And how can I forgive? How can I? take the debt that I thought somebody owed me when I forgive them, how can I transfer that debt to the cross if I think that Jesus only died for a limited group of people and he didn't right. die for the sin yeah. that wounded me? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it minimizes everything, yeah. even our practice as yeah. Christians. Yeah, you know, they would say, like I said, that, that it's, it's a waste of the precious blood. It invites a universalism uh, salvation to say that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Like, well, that's what the Bible says. You know, yeah. that's not me. Right. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but they would say that that leads to a, a universal salvation. Okay. So from uh, L, that would infer and state categorically that God's grace must be irresistible if... If, if I'm Lazarus in the tomb and regeneration was necessary and the atonement is limited, then of course it was irresistible. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no going back. If he has that call of salvation and regeneration in your life, there's no denying that work. And, and you have nothing to add to no, it. He, yeah, he okay, does all yeah, of it. That's where I was going to go. And then that leads to P, as you described, the perseverance of the saints. They're yeah. going to they're gonna land where they where God intended them to land because he did it, yeah. every, every yeah. ounce of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say that somebody that does not embrace Reformed theology believes, doesn't believe that there's security in our salvation. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Of course we believe that. Yeah. You know, my, my mantra has been for years when somebody asked me about that, can you lose your salvation or do you believe in eternal security? I said, I believe in the eternal security of every true believer in Jesus Christ. That's right. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you can defeat that yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not that I'm trying to get into an argument or anything. <laughs> okay, so back to the tea and tulip. So your testimony involves a season in your life when, when you lived a debauched lifestyle. You said that earlier mm-hmm. in the episode. So having been raised in five-point Calvinism, what was the effect upon you when you were living in blatant sin? I would think, naturally, that it would make you hopeless, like, well, I'm living like this. This isn't how I understand the elect to be living, so therefore I must not be elect. There's no hope for me. How did that affect you? Yeah, I would say it's the opposite end of the, the spectrum. If I'm elect... I can live any way that I want to live. And, and you know, not that as a 18 to 25-year-old, I'm not, as I'm at the liquor store, contemplating the five points of Calvinism and why am I buying this Jack Daniels, <laughs> you know. That's not going through my mind. But if you were to ask me, uh, and, and this is what I believed, if someone asked me, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I professed Christ. I was baptized as a baby. I made a pro- public profession in our in our church, and I know I'm not living the way that I that I should right now. But but I'm a Christian, you know. So to to me, I think it gives almost a license to sin and to live for the flesh. Hmm. I understand that this is a huge problem, like in Western Europe, for example, that came under the sway of Reformed theology. And also the state church in existence, yeah. and everybody's baptized as an infant. And so, 
you know, I may not ever attend church. My name is on the rolls, and I pay my taxes yep. that support the state, the state church. Right. So I'm I'm good. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very much like that. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. You know, and I, I was telling you a story about writing about the contrast between Charles Finney and and Jonathan Edwards, and it's and from my historical understanding of Finney, he saw how people were lodged in their views of Reformed theology mm. on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But he thought that they were using uh, the fact that they didn't live that way, live the way the elect should live, as an excuse by saying, well, I must be damned, so therefore there's no point in it. I'm just going to hide under the the fact of of five-point Calvinism. I think the preaching of of sin and calling out sin was so much more prevalent back then, Uh you know? And if, uh, if these evangelists are coming through like they were in the first and second great awakening and calling folks to sin and repentance and you're constantly reminded that you are in sin then and maybe yeah okay then i must not be an elected i'll continue in this life that everybody's telling me that i'm living so mm-hmm. it might just be a little bit of the difference between what i experienced and the way that finney what he witnessed and experienced then was just the overview of what was acceptable and moral in the culture of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he was his ministry was a revival producing kind of a ministry. So he saw the contrast. Okay, very good. That's that's interesting. Very interesting to me. So now you're a pastor of a Calvary Chapel here in Ellensburg and Calvary Ellensburg it's called and it's a it's a it's different than you'd expected growing up, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so you're here, and and you're you're serving the Lord, and and I know the Lord is blessing Calvary Ellensburg right now, yeah. and uh, I'm sure that's somewhat surprising. Maybe it is. I don't know yeah, if it is, but yeah. but you're you're experiencing these things that yeah. drew you into yes, this style yeah. of ministry. Yeah, and hearing, you know. I'm hearing now over and over the same things that I experienced now 20 some years ago, right? I've never heard the Bible taught, which is the the common denominator, you know. People want to understand and know truth and it's it, that comes from the word. They're hearing it taught, they're experiencing a uh, a fellowship of believers that is alive, you know, and this is a place I don't want to miss out on being. And so I'm I'm being able to witness folks and saying, I get it. I've been there. I know right where you are. Isn't this fun? Isn't this great? So, yeah. Yeah, it's been awesome. Well, I was with you guys on Wednesday night, and, and you stood up before I got up to, to teach a real small portion of Scripture. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 there were people in the in the crowd that had just gotten back from a missions trip to Mexico. Yeah. And then there was another group of my mind is escaping right. What was that other group? From Israel. Yeah. From Israel. Yeah, yeah you're Same Israel time, too, of course. Yeah. yeah. But you you just asked them to give short testimonies, yeah. pop-up testimonies yeah. of of what their experience was like. Yeah. And it was life. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're together, we're experiencing these things. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and other people who weren't able to go or maybe didn't feel called to go to either one, they were experiencing vicariously the joy of that happening yeah. happening out of that church. Yeah, yeah. It was and, cool. And they've been praying for it. You know, they're, they're, they're part of it too. That, you know, absolutely. Reminding them that they're part of it. So yeah. they're not missing out. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, we've, we've talked about a lot of things, Tad, and so I'd like you to take a couple of minutes, if you would, and, and just now direct your, your comments directly to the senior pastor or the lead pastor or leadership in a church, and maybe even to someone who's, who's contemplating you know, the five points as an attractive option for them. Uh, whatever you've prepared, uh, just go ahead and share your heart with, with the folks. Yeah. Well, again, for me, um, I had never really known anything else, and I had never uh, objectively and thoroughly studied the claims of Calvinism in light of Scripture. Uh, growing up in that environment, it is you. Here's our tenets of belief. Here's the five points. Now let's open the Word and see how we can apply these five points to the Word. And so instead of determining your theology and doctrine based on the Scripture, letting the Scripture define that and determine that, it's like I've fixated on a point or five points, and now I'm going to determine what Scripture says based on those. And that is very scary. Mm. And, um, and this is not just in regards to Calvinism. Mm. We can we can have a kind of our hobby horse, so to speak, on um, any number of giving the gifts, uh, what whatever, and then just like I've got to figure out in this text how to make that support what I want it to. And so that would be probably the main thing. We're, we're Calvary Chapel folks, most of a, the, the, you who are probably going to be listening to this, is to have good exegesis. I mean, it's just, it's proper study. What did it say then and there? Okay, good hermeneutics. What does it mean here and now? And then applying it and not painting ourselves into a theological corner and saying it's gotta it's gotta be this or it's gotta be this. It's uh, just devoting ourselves to the study of Scripture and letting it present truth. And when it's teaching something that puts the sovereignty of God on full display, man, you preach the sovereignty of God and exalt Him, and it is all up to Him, and it's Him every bit of the way. And when the when it's completely the text is teaching that you have a responsibility as a, as someone in the fellowship, as someone who's hearing these words to respond to God's sovereignty. Let that speak for itself. That you, it's it's okay to let God be sovereign and to also have responsibility um, as someone that's reading and studying the Scripture. You know, and I I think that, and maybe this is related to this a, a little bit. But one of the things of, of Calvinism, again, is that even to make a decision, they would say, would be a work. But that's not a meritous thing to receive a gift, mm-hmm. you know. My kids, uh, old now, but uh, receiving a gift from me, there's no merit involved in doing that. It's just open-handed. And so just reminding people of God's good grace is, is, is right there but there's a response to that grace that's proper. So so good, so good. I, I so uh, appreciate what you shared there. That's great. Good and word of encouragement. 
So uh, thanks again, Tad, for oh, taking you. time to share with our listeners. And, and this is a subject that needs to be brought up, and yeah, and you, you. you handle it so These well. These are Appreciate some things it. that I, you know, as I told you the other day, I, I, I've left this behind, you know, mm-hmm. to a point. And, and uh, to revisit it has also been good for me and to, to see what God has done, like you were saying earlier, to see how God had orchestrated all of these things. It's been good. It's, it's so supernatural. It is absolutely. It's sovereign. Yeah, yeah. And I <laughs> responded it. to it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And thanks to everyone else for joining us today on Strength for Today's Pastor. We're going to have a, a show note outline which will include this uh, published episode and some of its details and, and a link to Geisler's YouTube uh, lecture on this particular subject as well, which I found to be so helpful. Appointment uh, Ministries was started with a view towards strengthening the church and church revitalization. So to do that, we focus on senior or lead pastors to strengthen pastors, to strengthen churches. And our team would love to be of service to you if that's desirable on your side. Please check out our website for ideas on how we might help you in these areas. God bless you. Uh, As you fulfill your God-given calling to serve under our Lord Jesus Christ as under-shepherds of his church, in Jesus' name. Strength for Today's Pastor is sponsored by Pointman Ministries. You can find us at pointmanministries.com. That's spelled P-O-I-M-E-N ministries.com. If something in today's program prompts a question or comment, or if you have a topic idea for a future episode, just shoot us an email at strongerpastors at gmail.com. That's strongerpastors at gmail.com. May the Lord bless you as you serve him, his pastors, and his church.